hello. Welcome to the first episode of Talking the Outsider. I am your host, Kente, all the way live from Los Angeles, California. And I'm joined by my wonderful, beautiful co-host, the one and only Jen. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing good. That sounded super ominous, Kente. Yes. All the well, way live from L.A. I feel like we're getting ready to shoot Batman. Uh, shoot him like no 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 not that kind of shoot it wouldn't help anyway no i mean like film him you know everybody get your batman voice on right okay so <laughs> talk uh talk a little bit about yourself uh just to uh to let the people know who may not have seen us before uh well uh and Uh oh, oh I'm, I'm sorry. I had some technical issues. Okay. Uh, so I'm Jen. I am a former film student. I absolutely love television, movies, writing, and storytelling of all kinds. I've actually written novels. Um, I'm very interested in story reconstruction or deconstruction and reconstruction as it applies to different kinds of adaptations. And as that then applies to how we learn about the world around us based on our stories. So every story that we cover, every series that we cover, every book that we look into always has to me some wider sort of metaphoric uh, reason. Well, and I, I'll say this. One of the reasons that I'm so interested in this is because I learned very early on that stories that deal with fairy tales and legends and myths are oftentimes centered in our need to kind of deconstruct and understand the world around us. And as a result, I grew this very deep love into both visual storytelling, which I would say is filmmaking and uh, telling stories on TV, even uh, manga and comics and graphic novels, all of that. <clears throat> and it really reached into my love of the printed word. There is nothing better than a good wordsmithed story. So uh, that is sort of who I am and why I love to do this. I met Kinte a couple of years ago, and uh, we worked on a couple of podcasts that dealt with some series. And I don't know what happened exactly, but something really clicked and all of the series that we've done since then have been just a privilege and a joy to cover. So with that same enthusiasm, I'm here to talk about Outsider. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and uh, it's definitely been a marriage, uh, a, a very good marriage <laughs> between us. And uh, I'm so happy to be here with you to talk about uh all the stuff we talk about, but definitely this program, The Outsider. Um, a little bit about myself. My name is Kente Ferguson. Uh, we have a website called IndieRadio.org where we talk uh, different topics. We cover different TV shows. Uh, we talk about social issues. We also talk about on different programs. So you won't have it all on one program. So uh, we both me and Jen really love this material, The Outsider. Uh, I just completed the book yesterday. Jen read it probably closer to when it came out, right? Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I'm I, just as kind of an addendum. I'm a huge Stephen King nerd. I absolutely will read everything by Stephen King. And I'll say this, like, I won't go into this because I've told it before on this. The first books I read was by Stephen King when I was a, mm-hmm. uh, a wee lad. So the first book I ever read for fun was The Dead Zone. So I've been reading Stephen King for a, a long time and uh, uh, very um, looking forward to breaking down this series, um, The Outsider. Now, for this episode, we're going to uh, cover the book. So we're going to give you a full book review. And then we're going to go into the first episode uh, on, a, on our next podcast and then break down episode by episode. Uh, trying to uh, catch up to uh, where where they're at on the series. Now, just to let you know, we will be talking some spoilers about the book. Uh, we'll do it like more like the midway point um, before we get heavy into the spoilers and what's going on in the book and how it relates to the series. We'll talk about that as well. So if you haven't read the book or you don't want to know uh, what happens in the book, we will give you a certain point where we'll let you know where we're going into deep store, uh, spoiler territory when it comes to the book. Now, I can tell you this, much like The Walking Dead and some other things, the book and the TV show veer off in several different paths. So we'll talk about that. Uh, but they're pretty they're faithful quite a bit. So uh, we won't go heavy into that. So um, I think. Uh, a good place to start with this novel is just kind of giving a uh, breakdown of what the what the novel is about. So uh, I will read the synopsis uh, okay. that um, the short synopsis because there's like really long synopsis. Okay, so it says an 11 year old boy's violated corpse is discovered in a town park. Uh, witnesses, uh, let me put this on the screen where I don't have to look to the side. Uh, witnesses and fingerprints point unmistakably to one of Flint City's most popular citizens, Terry Maitland, a little league coach, English teacher, husband, and a father of two girls. Detective Ralph Anderson, whose son Maitland once coached, orders a quick and very public arrest. Maitland has an alibi. But Anderson and the district attorney soon have evidence to go with fingerprints and witnesses. Their cases seem ironclad. As the investigation expands and horrifying details begin to emerge, King's story kicks into high gear, generating strong tension and uh, almost unbearable suspense. Terry Maitland seems like a nice guy, but is he wearing another face? When the answer comes, it will shock you as only Stephen King can. Okay. All right. So that's pretty good. Pretty good. So I think uh, uh, for us to review the book, a good place to start off with is that um, the base, the basic premise is he sets up this, um, this storyline where you have a, crime that was committed and you have a suspect and this suspect uh they have him dead to rights i mean there's tons of witnesses that seen him with the victim the day that the the uh the victim who's a young child as it said in the synopsis um i mean he's covered in blood when they see him they got fingerprints dna 
everything to say that he did it. So as they're doing the investigation, you find out, wait a minute, this guy has an ironclad alibi, this videotape of him in a whole other place, right? And so it's like, wait, how can both of these things be true? So before we get into how possibly these things can be true as the story takes us down that path, um, I want to start off with you, Jen. Uh, the basic setup and premise of this book, uh, um, what did you think of it? <clears throat> okay, so I have a couple of thoughts just sort of right off the top. And I know that we will discuss quite a few of these things in depth in a little bit. This is not the standard Stephen King novel. Um, it is, it, there are, of course, elements of the supernatural in it, but it is at its core a, a different kind of story um, and one that is a little bit more difficult to tell. So extracting what everything is about, and I would really like, I, I really think that we should do this sort of over uh, the, as we start talking about who the characters are and what's happening. The, the thing that this sets up at the very beginning is an unimaginable crime, a crime that everybody would react viscerally to. There isn't a person in this town, and remember Stephen King always writes about small towns, and this is no exception. Um, nobody would respond with a sort of uh, tepid talking about uh, emotion. Everybody has an opinion. And the person who is in charge, the lead detective, has such a visceral reaction to it because he has his own experience with it. So there is something at the very beginning of this novel that sets, that really draws you in and sets up this further exploration of many different themes, but basically pulls you in in a way that says, look, this, this is not just a, this, this person didn't just walk into a drugstore and steal a bottle of hairspray or, you know, something like that. This is going to affect everybody. And that I think is one of the first major big draws to it being really good because it sets up the characters as excellent right from the very start. And it has, you know, trademark Stephen King, colorful characters, uh, Miss Rainwater, uh, who I love that character. Oh, it's a <clears throat> brief character. And it deals with a lot of uh, touch tones uh, that you see in a lot of his novels, like substance abuse and recovery. Uh, it's a lot of that in it as well, and which is uh, something that you see a lot, you know, which is personal to him because he he was an addict and he's very out front about his struggles. So uh, although, mm -hmm. uh, although I, I, I would like to preface everything that we say, with this story is foundationally about belief belief and a structure of thinking that defies rationality um it's one of those stories that you can easily insert yourself into because we all have a fixed moment in our existence that we sort of center our reality around we as an example know that something is not true and trying to tell us that it is true doesn't always work just because you tell us that it's not true. There has to be something bigger. And so the core of the story is really about how we believe 
and how we come to change those beliefs based on either our environment, the people that we know, or just what we know to be true. You know, there's this great piece in the in sort of the very beginning of the story where they set up, it can't be both happening at the same time. It can't be one set of situations and circumstances existing and yet the other existing as well. So there is a, a huge conundrum right at the beginning. Yes. And uh, just to let people know, too, I, I didn't read the actual physical book this time. Uh, I listened to it on uh, audio, audio uh, audible. I'm sorry, audio book. And uh, I just want to I feel like it's important to point this out. Um, uh, someone who voices a lot of his books is uh, the actor uh, William Patton. I put his picture up on the screen if you're listening, if you're watching the video. And uh, he does a magnificent job uh, of um, he does multiple characters. He's just really good. I mean, he, he's very good at um, at uh, reading uh, these novels. So if you and he's done he did Dr. Sleep, the uh, Bill Hodges trilogy, uh, you know, a lot of his material. He's recorded the audiobook. So. Uh, I just wanted to point that out. Uh, and, and he really makes it, he adds that extra layer of awesomeness to it. So I wanted to point that out. So, um, all right. So going back to th this book, one thing that is present in a lot of Stephen King's novels is the harming of a child in mm. some form or fashion. And this one, there is, you know, I mean, the murder that happens is horrific, right? I mean, and right. it's horrifically described. And uh, it's just, you know, it, 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 and it's right off the bat. You, they push you, put you into that. And uh, you, can, you can see that the effects on this town, Flint City, on this murder, you know, it just rocks the town. And it really sets up the events of the the novel. So, you know, that's like I said, that's a recurring theme in a lot of Stephen King's work. Uh, and this is no different. Well, there, there's also I think, you know, if, if you're thinking about this from a Stephen King perspective, it's the subterfuge of innocence because there are plenty of it's not just children, although children, I think, best typify this and and create for Stephen King anyway sort of create that portal that he uses but there is definitely a subterfuge of innocence that he explores in a way that is very atypical from most people for a lot of the that kind of thematic exploration we're used to something a little bit more um again sort of based in a different kind of universe by moving us into a supernatural experience i think in some ways it actually allows us to more readily be available to learn those lessons to hear what he has to say because much like the book it sort of pulls us outside of our standard level of belief so it's not like we're reading true crime and we don't have the same kind of absolute connection to it by does that make sense no it makes perfect sense it, it makes perfect sense and i mean you know it's you know, like I said, it's very jarring when you hear the details of what happened to this uh, this child. Uh, 
I don't know if we should go into depth with it, but uh, it's pretty horrific. Uh, the, the the kid is uh, basically eviscerated. And, uh, you know, there are some signs of sexual contact, uh, not necessarily with the uh, perpetrator, but, you know, uh, a branch is used to sodomize the child and the kid is bitten and it's really horrible. So uh, so right away, you can understand why people feel the way they do so strongly about uh, this crime and its potential suspect. So one thing that is definitely a, a, a major aspect of this is the uh so we have our our main character uh detective ralph anderson and ralph anderson very early on uh decides to make a public arrest to really shame uh terry maitland who's our suspect and this is something that is it's a huge moment uh, right off the bat in the novel, and it's a through line throughout the novel, mm-hmm. is the, his decision to publicly arrest him and shame him. And it sets a lot of things on course, right? Right. And uh, one of the reasons why he says that he does this is because he, remember, he has two patrolmen um, actually do the arrest because he says that he couldn't trust himself not to, you know, beat him to death, you know? So... And then also, you know, in this novel, Ralph Anderson and his wife have a child who's around the same age as the victim, who's away at camp, uh, Derek Anderson. And Derek Anderson was one of the, uh, uh, he actually played on the Little League team that uh, Terry Maitland coaches. So there's this connection there, you know, and then there's this fear of, you know, did he do something to my child and I don't know about it? You know what I mean? So he makes it a very emotional decision to have him publicly arrested in front of his friends and family and to, uh, you know, put these charges out there. And so that comes up over and over throughout this novel of that decision. And there's consequences, uh, for that. So, uh, um, and it's beautifully written. Uh, it's, it's beautifully written what uh, what happens uh, um, throughout the novel, but especially, you know, that scene, because it really shows you like, you know, um, uh, how uh, he feels. And, you know, he's a strong character. So um, going to Terry Maitland. Uh, and I want to re- reiterate, we're reviewing the book. So and then we're going to start reviewing the episodes of the of the TV show. So we're going to talk about the whole book. Believe me, we're going to let you know that the spoilers coming. So uh, if you don't want to know or whatever, what happens in the book, which I, I suspect is going to be different than a TV show uh, to some degrees. But anyway, um, so let's talk about Terry Maitland, uh, okay. the, the character of Terry Maitland who is this, by all accounts, this wonderful person, great father, you know, and, and such. Uh, what do you think about that character, Terry Maitland? Uh, he's he's an interesting character from what we get to see pretty early on. Um, I, I think that he, in terms of how he's presented by Stephen King, he feels a little bit like... Uh, 
uh, at least early, he feels like a paragon, um, you know, somebody who is perhaps not above reproach, but certainly so far from this would be the person that I would think was a killer, that it stuns people to think that it could have been Terry Maitland. Um, and I, one of the reasons that I really love that is because it it sets into motion uh, the townspeople's sort of reaction to this in that it kind of splits them a bit and makes them uh, much like real everyday uh, experiences, you know, they, they begin to start thinking more emotionally instead of factually. And that is quite honestly, a little bit later, one of the things that really helps propel the story in, in a direction, I won't say what it is, because we'll get to that. But it, it becomes very interesting the way that, that, he, that people respond to him. The other thing that I really liked about the Terry Maitland character in the book is I really love the way that it is very obvious that Terry has this deep connection to his own children. Um, and that is, I think, one of the cornerstones of a well-made character. It also works in a very sharp contrast with what we will see later with the supernatural aspect and how it relates to characters that perhaps maybe don't have children. Um, and it, it's actually quite good. So I liked this character. My only complaint about Terry Maitland is that it does seem like for someone who is so learned and so perhaps smart, um, there are some intellectual choices that I feel like he makes that don't quite add up. And that's really my only complaint. Yeah, that that's something that uh, I have some complaints about, too, and we'll get into that. Uh, so... When this happens, so another great character is uh, his wife, uh, um, Marcy Maitland. And uh, I think that she's very well written as well. And one thing that I love about her character is that she definitely is pro her husband. <laughs> you know, yeah, she very. never for one moment um, questions his innocence. And she's so supportive of her husband. And you know, and her children as well. And I think she's a very strong character. Uh, what do you think about Marcy? I, again, I think that this actually goes back to what I was talking about before in the, the foundation of this is all about belief. Um, she is one of the unshakable, unflappable characters throughout. She acts as a, a kind of bedrock in terms of belief. And it's not, you know, <laughs> it's actually the opposite, I think, of what, uh, some of the other characters go through, but she has such an unwavering support of what she knows as reality and how she is choosing to protect it, that in some ways she actually misses a whole lot of uh, the stuff that we are privy to because we get to see behind the scenes. And the other thing that I really love about her is she has this, in dialogue, no-nonsense approach to speech, which you know, if you've read enough Stephen King, you uh, there are characters that Stephen King writes that you can tell that he feels like he wants to kind of put a bunch of stuff into, and they end up talking a little bit more flowery, a little bit more um, like they've got tons to sort of say outside of the box. But this character talks in such a pragmatic and direct way that it's sort of it, it's it's almost a, a, a 
like a an interesting uh, juxtaposition to the other characters. Now, for anybody out there who's ever accused of a horrible crime that you may or may not have committed, uh, it's very helpful to have as your best friend uh, the top attorney in the area that you live in. <laughs> And uh, so Terry Maitland's um, uh, best friend just happens to be this guy named Howie Gold, who is uh, like the attorney. Uh, He's the one that you go to to get you off, you know, and he's, you know, very successful and they're very close friends. They coached with each other. And another thing is he never is he never wavers in his belief in his friend Terry's uh, innocence as well. And right. and um, Howie Gold is a, is a really well written, very good character as well. So um, he, you know, he's another one of those uh, really good characters. And um, he also works with a a man who is a former detective named Alec Pelly, who uh, is like his um, private investigator who, you know, goes and finds out information. And there's like this really good uh, play between. Uh, both the DA uh, and the police department and Alec Pelly on trying to get the information, trying to get um, the evidence. So they're always trying to one up each other, trying to find, you know, evidence and whatnot. And I think that, you know, that that's really cool. Uh, That's a cool aspect of, um, of uh, this novel as well. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, And just kind of going through the characters before we continue, there's Bill Samuels, who is the Flint City uh, um, Assistant District Attorney, uh, who, or, uh, or is he the assistant? Yeah, he's the ADA. And um, he, he's described as a, a cowlick in his hair, like much like alfalfa. And they make a lot of uh, references to the cowlick in his hair, <laughs> which, right. is, which is pretty funny. He has all these old, old references, uh, Stephen King, you know, uh, Our Gang and whatnot. Um, and uh, he's an interesting character, too, uh, who is running for reelection. So so or potentially running for reelection. So he has a lot to to win or lose with this case as well, personally. And then you also have now this is one of my favorite characters from the book. Uh, I'm not going to talk too much about the TV show, uh, but when we start talking about the TV show, I'll talk about that character book versus the TV show is the Yoon Sablo character. Uh, Yoon Sablo is a a Mexican uh, police detective who works for Flint city, who works with uh, Ralph Anderson and on this case. And his, I love his character. His character is really cool. Uh, You know, you root for this guy, you know, um, he has a lot of insight into um, what we'll talk about a little bit later uh, when it comes to uh, what's going on in this story. And uh, I just think that he's a, a really good character. What did you think about the Sablo character? I, 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 I can't add too much to what you said. I really like that character too. Although I will say that, that, that this, is, <laughs> this is one of the characters that makes me think that, you know, sometimes Stephen King, as much as I love him, and believe me, I do love him, um, sometimes writes very tropey <laughs> and this is one of those characters that does feel a little bit tropey mm-hmm. yeah 
Yeah, but I don't know. It worked for me though. It it does, and and in this particular situation, I think it actually works really well because 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 it's expected. You know, I mean, part of the reason for using tropes in the first place is because we expect it and we accept it pretty easily. And so, yeah, going into that, uh, the the character sort of it makes us feel at ease. I guess is the best way to say it. All right. So, yeah, I mean, it, it does. And there's definitely a lot of tropey type stuff going on in this. But, uh, you know, I, well, I, I you're like read Stephen King. You sort of have to overlook some of that because it, that's that's just his style of writing. It's not I don't feel like you can attach any negative or even really super positive stuff to it. This is how he writes. So it's it, it's kind of a uh, it's not really worth exploring too much because this is how he gets his points across and i feel like that's just the expected stephen king narrative all right so we're putting the ticker at the bottom so if you're watching this (laughs) this is the spoiler part of the of the novel okay we're going to only spoil the novel in this episode so just to let people know if you are let's say you finish like you you're getting to this podcast at the end of the run and you're, you want to, um, you know, follow along, you might want to check this one out at the end. So we set up the book and now we're going to talk about the spoiler aspects of the novel. Okay. So, um, okay. So basically what, what ends up happening is they, they get this evidence that, uh, through this videotape, that uh, Terry Maitland was in um, this a city that's seventy miles away called Cap City, and he was right. at a um, at a well in this he was at a um, uh, what's the name of that writer? Uh, it's a real writer, Harlan um, Coben. Uh, oh right, um, Harlan Coben um, lecture, and which was pretty cool, right? That he threw in Harlan Coben. You know, uh, I thought that he does that quite often, you know, where he'll throw in other authors that are like his friends or he that he admires and whatnot. And uh, so there's videotape of him asking a question at the Harlan Coben um, lecture. And then also they find they find a book that only he touched in the gift shop and they get the uh, they get his fingerprints showing that he was, in fact, there when this murder was happening. So there's this belief that this evidence could potentially exonerate him, even though the police and the, the the, uh, ADA still believe that they had the right man. So when they take him to his first arraignment, um, Frankie Peterson's brother, uh, I can't recall his name, so don't shoot me. Uh, actually murders Terry Maitland in front of the steps of the of the uh, the um, courthouse. Now, there's other things that I'm not mentioning uh, just because, I, you know, there's a lot of little details that, right. um, you know, I, I'm trying to get to the details that matter the most. So there are other aspects that I haven't talked about. So um, just to let people know. But um, so. When Terry Maitland is is killed, you know, uh, pretty early on in the book, uh, I just want to kind of ask you, what did you think about that? I mean, that was pretty. Did you expect that? Was it surprising? 
No, and and to be honest, Ollie Peterson, who had sort of not prominently figured in things, I I feel like that was actually a really a, a good way to um, express some things that are going to happen later. Uh, and the the thing that was so interesting, I think, about that in particular is both the unexpectedness of it, but also the, we've already been given this teaser that uh, it's very possible that Terry Maitland didn't do this. Right. And so to then have him die while still under suspicion, but all, you know, clues are pointing to, hey, maybe he didn't do it, is like just such an incredibly sort of, uh, climactic moment in in that part of the book because it really kind of gives us this oh no all hope is now lost I mean if he's dead what does it even matter if he's innocent you know like it, there's so much that kind of goes into that and his last words are I didn't do this so his dying right. declaration to Ralph Anderson is right. I didn't do this and that that makes a big point as well and I think at this point he uh Ralph actually is he's he's not convinced that Terry didn't do it but he is so full of questions that I feel like he is truly unsure what happened here and so when when Terry says that to him I think it kind of gives him a motivation to explore so much further that he probably wouldn't have had if that hadn't happened. Right. No, 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 you're, you're, you're right. Yeah. Um, so that happens. Terry Maitland dies. And, um, also what happens is, uh, the Peterson, uh, family just goes into a tailspin. The mother has a heart attack, uh, which happened before that, my bad. Um, and then when Ali shoots Terry Maitland and then is killed in the process by Ralph Anderson, I believe, right? Ralph Anderson was the one who put him down. Yeah. Um, then his father attempts to commit suicide and he's not uh, he, by hanging himself, but is unsuccessful. So he's in a coma. So right. all these things are going on. So the, basically the Peterson family is like wiped out for the most part. And, um, so now what you do is you, you know, you, you have all this dread going on and then you have Ralph Anderson who is perplexed and he feels guilty over some of the decisions he's made and he starts questioning what happens. So he wants to find out what exactly happens and he starts working in a way with Howie Gold. He wants to start having conversations with uh, Marcy Maitland who doesn't want nothing to do with him. She sees right. him as this is the person who basically got my husband killed and ruined our names and my, our, their kids are having issues at school and whatnot. So the town is not reacting well to them because the town doesn't, they're not privy to all of this information. I mean, they, they may have some legitimate questions about whether he was there or not, but to them, look, Terry Maitland was arrested. He was the prime suspect. And so that it, it he's still basically the killer. Right. Right. So and 
let me let me just interject something here sure. because I think that this is important at this point. It it is not, you know, Ralph is not investigating this because he thinks, oh wow, there could be something supernatural happening, or ooh, you know, how spooky is it that this is this is happening? There's a pragmatic, absolute cop sense about Ralph, which is you know goes back to a Stephen King trope, but it's a very hard line where his understanding of both rules of evidence and what is uh, expected in terms of behavior of people, it's very well spelled out that he does not deviate from that. And he is like the quintessential investigator. He believes things that are supported by direct evidence. It's one of the reasons that he makes such a compelling character to be at the center of all of this because his belief is what basically is shaken to the core but it's important that at the very beginning that he that we understand that it is it's not that he is out there investigating this because he thinks that you know oh well you know i gotta clear terry's name or it's nothing like that it's that things don't add up things don't make sense to him and he needs things desperately to make sense that's right. Well said. So, um, so, okay. So let's get into the big, the big, uh, I don't want to say twist, but moment. Cause I'm, I'm getting to the main, uh, antagonist, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm trying to build it up to get to there, but I want to, I want to do this. Okay. So, if you've read, if you know a lot about Stephen King's novels, you know that he had a trilogy of books called the Bill Hodges trilogy. And those three books were Mr. Mercedes, uh, Finders Keepers and End of Watch. And one of the characters that was, I mean, uh, just to, I'm not going to tell too much about the Bill Hodges trilogy, but the Bill Hodges trilogy, he was about he was a retired detective who eventually started a um a uh, private investigation firm and one of his uh, uh, people that worked with him was a character named Holly Gibney and Holly Gibney, uh, who was a protege of Bill Hodges um, is brought into this story, which, you know, fans of those novels love that character. And it's a big, and it's a, it's a big moment into this novel because it ties those two worlds together, you know, right? Um, which is pretty cool. Uh, and there's a lot of, if you haven't read the Mr. I'm sorry, the, uh, Bill Hodges trilogy, um, it does spoil it for you. Cause I hadn't finished, you know, I just started Mr. Mercedes. So it does kind of tell you, uh, uh, some major aspects of the ending of the trilogy. Um, so, this, you know, the Holly Gibney character who, how would you describe her? Oh, uh, boy, <laughs> that's a tough one. Um, I think that I would describe her as, th- this is a case where I I think um, Stephen King did a really good job, and and I'll make a caveat about that in a second, but that, the, the Holly character is, I would say, almost the counter to Ralph. Um, although she is extremely centered in 
how to pull together a narrative based on evidence, she is also very open and very susceptible to different kinds of beliefs. And part of that is because we, what we understand about her is that she has kind of an exceptional past. And so there is a, I, I actually likened Holly to a kind of Will Graham, mm. um, where for, she is for you Thomas to, Harris fans. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. The the from the Hannibal series, um, and and in in a lot of ways, that's how she is. She is just you know she's able to see things that other people cannot see or will not see. I suppose is maybe a better way of saying it. Um, I liked her as a as kind of you know that tool to tell us that part of the story but there are definitely some the holly character is the is probably the character that annoyed me the most not because of what she did but because of the way that stephen king interjects her existence to the other characters through it 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 actually kind of annoyed me because i felt like the other characters are far too critical in some ways of how she presents information instead of the information being presented. Does yeah. that, you know what I'm saying? No, it makes perfect sense. She's used in this way. Um, there's some evidence that I want to go too deep in there because I want the save people who want to read the book, something to look for, but there's some stuff that happens in Ohio and where I believe that's where her character is based out of. So, the, so Alec Paley, who is um, Howie Gold's um, uh, private investigator hires her, well, he's looking to hire Bill Hodges, and he can't. He, right. he can't hire Bill Hodges, so he hires uh, Holly Gibney to look into the information, um, into the um, the move about the 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 um, the movements of the Terry Maitland character when he was in Ohio. And, and they've had a previous relationship, right? I mean, they had actually worked together before, so it's not like he's not hiring her cold out of nowhere, right? And uh, I won't say why they can't hire Bill Hodges. You got to find that out yourself. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, uh, so what happens is that she, you know, starts to uncover evidence in this case, and then she becomes an integral part of um, how this whole thing unfolds. So, uh, which is, um, which is very interesting like she has an interesting speech pattern i think she's is she like autistic or something like that well i, I mean i feel like we're not actually given that information directly but she definitely has some kind of uh intellectual and uh higher brain function issue that precludes her from being able to speak to people in maybe a more normal communication pattern um, I mean, I think it's it's highly implied that she's like uh, super high functioning autistic. But I would say the the word that we used to use for those people is a savant. Um, like she is so incredibly smart and so incredibly able to see things that maybe most people cannot see that it kind of borders on there's a, a genius factor underneath all of this. Now. Let's get to the main antagonist. He goes by many names. Some, they mainly call him the outsider, which is the name of the novel. Right. But I think the internet loves to call him El Coco. <laughs> He's the boogeyman. 
El Cuco. Uh, so, okay. So, essentially, we find out that the person behind these uh, atrocities, and there's others that tie into it, won't go into that, is this being who feeds off of grief and uh, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily fear, but more grief and chaos and turmoil and also the blood of children. And he's described as this legend that goes back to Spain and actually throughout there's a version of this, this uh, creature or this entity or whatever in all kind of different um, uh, cultures and the one that is closely related, they, they connect to it is this El Cuco. Um, and uh, there is a, uh, there's this part, <laughs> somebody said who Trump, uh, <laughs> there, there's this part where uh, after Holly's done all this uh, research into what the, you know, this entity, right. And, and it's interesting because people, they start to already start to suspect something supernatural. Uh, Yun Sablo is, I think, maybe the first person to kind of say something. This is before Holly. Right. And uh, so when she has this meeting with everybody involved, um, she shows them this movie, this Luchadora movie from, I think they said, was it the 70s or possibly earlier? I can't remember. And uh, it's basically about El Cuco. Uh, this uh, this char- this um, this legend, and uh, it's it's a really good scene. I actually I should have isolated some of that because it's really good in the audiobook, But um, but you guys can check it out. And um, so we get these encounters of El Cuco or the Outsider. Uh, the the first one, and this is the first time we're bringing him up with this character named Jack Hoskins. Jack Hoskins is this uh this wayward detective who's on leave on vacation. And because, uh, after the shooting, they put, uh, Ralph Anderson on leave. He's brought off of his vacation to, to come back as a detective. Cause they only have like three detectives in this town, something like right. that. It's definitely small town. So one of the first things is they find these clothes that were left in a barn, uh, that possibly, uh, Terry Maitland, uh, had so he goes to the barn after everybody's cleared out, and this is and then he has an encounter with El Cuco, which we don't know at that time is El Cuco, but um, he you know El Cuco scratches him or massages his back of his neck. It's it's pretty <laughs> violent. It's, right. it's definitely yeah. I feel like it's pretty violent. So and after that he becomes kind of like a a, a puppet of El Cuco or what would you, how would you say? Uh, so I, I wouldn't actually classify him as a puppet. I would actually classify him as a tool. And uh, the reason that I make that differentiation is because he is very much in command of his own thoughts as well. It's not like he takes him over completely. He, there's a level of torment happening behind sort of the, the, what, what is seen and that level of torment is how he controls or how he uses him. Right. So just so that we'll, you know, uh, we'll cut through it because we want to, uh, we, we're not trying to tell the whole book, but 
Um, you find out that El Cuco uh, is in a transformation phase where right. after he's taken the face of uh, someone he set up for a crime, which is in that case, Terry Maitland, he scratches his next victim, which is this uh, bouncer at a strip club. And what happens is it takes, I think they said something like 24 days, possibly, for him to fully transform to the, the next person. Right. And, and he's very weak during this period of time. So he has to use like a surrogate or a tool such as um, such as Jack Hoskins to to uh, carry out some of his dirty work while he's making his transformation. And he can kind of project himself in certain places, but not there fully. Right. So, so, um, so there is a and purpose a, for Jack a, Hoskins, huh? Th- there's a lot of uh, reference to um, to him being uh, unformed. Um, uh, what's a good word for that? Um, sort of nondescript. And th- during that transformation time, it's it, it's almost like people can't quite get a fix on what he actually looks like. Right. So um, I think this is a good part to just kind of get into the finale Um, because, you know, like I said, we're not telling the whole book. If you want to, you know, if you want, obviously I'm, we're suggesting you read the book. So in this part, we'll just get into the end of the book. So, the end of the book, by the end of the book, they figure out that um, his next, the next person he's going to be is uh, Claude Bolton, who is the, um, he's a uh, ex uh, offender. Uh, you know, um, he's cleaned himself up and now he works as a bouncer at a um, strip club, but he's uh, on leave with his mother, uh, Miss Bolton. I can't, her name was like Lola or something like that. Yeah, I think so. And Lola is a char- quite a character herself, the mom. Uh, and uh, she was cool at first, but then I think she kind of drug on. I think he fell in love with this character because he wrote her so much dialogue and stuff. It was like kind of <laughs> overkill. And uh, so they, um, you have, you have um, Yoon Sablo, Holly Gibney, you have um, Ralph Anderson. You have Alec Paley and Howie Gold. They fly to Texas to meet up with Claude Bolton and his mother because they figure that the El Cuco or the outsider is somewhere near, you know, till he makes his change. And um, they figure out that he is in this place called the, um, oh, my God. It's called the, uh, I just, uh, it's like this hole in the ground. Oh, right. Um, the, uh, I know people, <laughs> yeah, fans, blank fans of the book is going to be like, you don't even know. <laughs> but I, I just read, finished it yesterday. I can't remember what the name of it is, but uh, okay. it's like this, I'll, I'll, it's like I'll this, it. uh, it's like this in the, in this place in Texas, it's this uh, um, famous place. Uh, and it's, I, I think it's covered by a mountain possibly. Um and they go to see if they can find El Cuco and Jack Hoskins, who still uh, by this point is is very ill from 
from uh, the effects of the poisoning that uh, El Cuco gave him on the back of his neck right. would do anything just to get relief. El Cuco tells him to kill them before they can reach him. And uh, he has a sniper rifle and he's lying in wait as they, they get to the location where El Cuco is down in the cave, right? Uh, in this hole. And um, at this point, this is when, um, spoiler alert, Howie Gold is shot and killed as well as Alec Pelly. And, and Yoon Sablo is wounded. At the same time, though, he's bitten by a snake, <laughs> which we laughed about yesterday. Uh, when I say he, I'm talking about Jack Hoskins, is bit by a snake and he's full of poison. He's bit multiple times. And El Cuco t- tells him in his head, you know, that I can relieve you from that, you know, the snake bites and all of that. Just make sure that they don't get to me because he's weak at right. this point. And uh, so they're able to, they have a confrontation that is, um, that is Holly and, uh, and um, uh, Ralph Anderson with Jack Hoskins, where Jack Hoskins is murdered uh, by Ralph Anderson. And then it's off to see El Cuco. <laughs> so, uh, so in the ending, they get to his lair, El Cuco's lair. Right. And he is in still in transformation. So he's kind of somewhat still has the face of Terry Maitland, but he's, he's transformed mostly to Claude Bolton. So they, you know, um, they, uh, have this conversation with him where, you know, uh, Holly calls him a pedophile, <laughs> you know, he's like, you know, you're a pedophile, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and so Ralph Anderson wants to kill him, but he's afraid to shoot him because the, uh, the, the cave is unstable. So a sound, cause when they yelled, like stuff starts falling, debris starts falling. So, right. It's super precarious. Right. So he can't just shoot him. And, um, so what ends up happening is, uh, spoiler alert is, uh, I believe, he gets upset El Cuco when he's called a pedophile or something to that effect. And he starts to charge them. And, um, Holly Gibney has, I believe it's a sack with ball bearings in it. Yeah. And he, she beats El Cuco to death. (laughs) She beats him to death. Basically. That's how El Cuco dies. Cause he's weak. So, so he's not at his strongest. And then when he dies, he starts leaking worms and all kind of stuff. And then they have to run from the worms and uh, they barely make it out. So uh, that's how it ends. The happy slapper. Right. The happy slapper. That's correct. That's what they call it. Then there's this postscript of them coming up with their story because they can't tell what really happened. So they come up with a story. I won't get into all of that. And they decide to go ahead and live their lives. Uh, yada, yada, yada. I, you know, we don't, I don't think we need to go into that specifically, but there is a moment where Ralph Anderson, uh, he, he, he has like worms coming out of him or something, but mm-hmm. we're not sure if that's a dream or if he's now El Cuco. So, uh, it's kind of left up to, you know, 
you know, uh, it, is he now going to be El Cuco or is he, or was that just a dream? So, and that's the novel. So, uh, what do you think? I mean, uh, what do you think about that ending? Well, okay. So uh, it, it's not, it, it, it <clears throat> so the ending was a little anticlimactic. I mean, I, I do in some ways feel like it left a lot of not just questions for us as the readers to sort of mull and understand, but also just the, the cumulative effect of how uh, El Cuco's death or how it died was, I don't know, it just felt a little rushed to me. Um, what I really liked, though, and I know that this is going to stand in contrast to what I just said, there is something about uh, ambiguity in terms of what was actually happening there that allows us to take the story to kind of the next level. And I do sort of feel like that is what they were setting up or what he was setting up all along because there is something, you know, normally in a Stephen King story, we have the, we have the, um, the, the disbelief is something that allows for the terror to spread. And here we have the same thing, right? The disbelief allows the terror to spread. But it, but what we don't have here is a really good sort of uh, purposeful understanding of what we have as El Cuco's motive, right? Other than, I mean, we know he has to survive off of the blood or, you know, whatever of, of children, but we don't have the the kind of internal uh motive that i feel like would have been far more satisfying i mean even in it as crazy nebulous as pennywise the clown was at least when we got to the end we sort of understood that it was part of something much bigger and here i don't know i mean i don't know how you felt about it but i just felt a little bit like yeah okay it ended and maybe I can move on and, you know, try to think of other ways that this might tie in, but it never actually felt really super satisfying. No, it, it wasn't satisfying at all. Um, the end, the way it ended is, and, and I, I, it makes me wonder, like, does he, maybe he just does, he thinks it's more about the journey. He doesn't, cause it does, he never, it, I mean, he very rarely sticks to landing. So, you know, and I, you know, I love him as an author, but that's one of the things that not just me, but most people will agree that is the the one thing about him is that he doesn't he rarely sticks to landing so you know but you know like i said i mostly enjoyed the book uh i thought it was very entertaining um you know until we got to the end where it was like you know there were some things that you had to s suspend your belief it's like huh like really do people act like that you know i but, I, I also want to point out that this book was written before uh, DNA was kind of uh, a very solid and and uh, instant kind of a thing. Um, and because of that, it does feel a little bit dated. The, the novel itself feels a little bit dated. It, and it's something that I think we'll probably talk about uh, in terms of the TV show. Wait, this How... came out last year. What? This came out 2018. The, no, I'm talking. I'm I'm saying that when this was written about, oh. not when it was written, 
And so it, it feel and that, I mean, that actually works. It works in their favor because it kind of keeps us from being able to, be, there's just, there's a bunch of sort of things that don't quite add up in terms of the detective work and the way that they kind of circumvent and get around that is, oh yeah, it's just not available. And that's what I'm saying. So it kind mm. of feels a little bit like, you know, they, uh, what's a good word for this? Like, like he put band-aids over some stuff. And that didn't really sit so well with me. But overall, I I think that this was an excellent book, despite the fact that the ending was not super satisfying. It, it the, the, I have to sort of agree with what you said about it, about the journey because it is about the journey. There is so, there are so many awesome exploration points in Outsider that really give us a peek into, I think, what is a culture right this very second, where we refuse to believe facts that are right in front of us. We have an entire society that believes that the earth is flat. And how does that happen? Well, we get, I think, a, a really good feel for that based on the responses that people have to the actual uh, the the differences in what is happening in reality and what your reality allows you to believe and there's something just so fascinating about sort of twisting things around so that you know we all know that the earth is round but what if tomorrow we found out that the earth was flat would anybody believe it i mean it's like that is how in your face this kind of uh, idea really is and to take somebody like Ralph who is such a hardened police investigator somebody who like I said before really relies on evidence and a kind of chain of evidence to prove things for him to have to accept that there is something outside of the norm happening here is huge it's it is absolutely huge and this is where we experientially, I think, can draw some information for or some we can draw some interesting ideas about how we behave when we are approached with information that perhaps doesn't line up specifically with our version of reality. Very well said. Okay, so stay tuned if you're on IndieRadio.org or if you're checking this out, our next episode, which will be coming right up, we will be reviewing the pilot episode of the outsider and um so we won't spoil the the episodes um based on newer episodes so we're just going to purely talk about the pilot and um and we'll talk about how some things relate with the novel and so on and such and such so um let's go to you jen how can people get you in social media you can find me on Twitter at following bliss one, and you can find me uh, on my websites at critical laughs, which is actually changing to studio white wolf and movies, make the com. Cool. And you can get me at Kente F on uh, Twitter and at Kente Ferguson on Instagram. And the website is indyradio.org. That's I N D Y radio.org. Peace. We will catch you uh, next time right here.